You are listening to the sermon, Origin Story, Does It Really Matter? From the sermon series, Two Truths and a Lie, by lead pastor Dan Krause from Brian Baptist Church, originally taught on Sunday, April 30th, 2023. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Some of you are doing good. That's close enough. I'll take it. My name's Dan. I'm the lead pastor here. I missed you last week, although I was here with you. Um, I'll be honest with you. I don't like it when I don't get to preach. Uh, that being said, how great did Tim do last week? Wasn't that fantastic? I told him that was really good, almost too good. So he's got to watch that. Uh, no, it was uh, very good. Hey, we are in a series, Two Truths and a Lie, and today I am the... Uh, uh, the, the one who has to give you the two truths and a lie to see if you guys can figure out when I'm being honest, <laughs> which is pretty much all the time, FYI, or when I'm lying. But for right now, I am going to tell you a lie, but you have to figure out which one it's going to be, one, two, or three. Uh, the first, uh, first one is this. At one point in my life, I interviewed a reindeer, and it got played on all of the local news stations in Anchorage on Christmas Day. That's story number one. Story number two, I once spent a week in Rio Marie, Brazil, fishing for peacock bass. All right, that's story number two. Story number three, uh, I got to spend some time speaking directly with uh, President George W. Bush and Laura Bush. All right, which one do you think it is the lie? Uh, number one, that I interviewed a reindeer and it was played on uh, the TV stations in uh, Anchorage, Alaska on Christmas Day. Number two, that I spent a week in Rio Marie, Brazil fishing for peacock bass, or number three, that I spent some time with Laura and George W. Bush. Raise your hands. Which one do you think it is? I got a lot of threes, a lot of threes. It's actually number two. I never went to Rio, Rio Marie, Brazil. I didn't know there was such a place, if I'm honest. I'm not going to tell you any specifics about the other two. You'll just have to guess <laughs> and fill it in. Back in 2017, uh, my son and Elijah and I got to go to... Um, uh, Lehigh Valley area in Pennsylvania, and I did a chapel for the AHL, which is the league beneath the NHL. I got to do a chapel for the AHL All-Star Game. Uh, part of that is we were allowed to go anywhere in the building, including locker rooms, and uh, there was an evening like uh, banquet we were able to attend, and there was a lot of uh, pretty famous people. Uh, because this is Mansfield, Ohio, I won't bother listing them because you won't know any of them because they're hockey people. I, I will tell you about one. There's a guy named Danny Breer. Uh, he was a pretty big name in Philadelphia, and I think he played somewhere else as well. Uh, but, but we got to meet Danny Breer, and Elijah was pretty excited about that. Uh, but standing with Danny Breer was, was, a, was an older gentleman and his wife. And, and I struck up a conversation, finding out that this is Danny Breer's uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law. In our conversation, uh, I, before we were done, uh, it wasn't clear to me whether or not they, they were believers. And, and I said to uh, uh, Danny Breer's father-in-law, hey, you know, I'm a chaplain. I'm here to do a chapel for the teams. Um, how can I pray for you? And, and he paused, and he's like, well, I guess it can't hurt. Um, he says, I am a scientist, and I have been spending, I have spent the last 30 years of my life uh, looking for a, a treatment or cure for the effects of Alzheimer's disease. Would you pray that I would be able to find that and make a difference? So I did. I prayed for it right then, and I actually, this has been six years, and, and whenever it comes to mind, I, I still pray 
that God would somehow use him to find this treatment or cure for the symptoms and effects of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but, but, in, but, but after having a conversation, it struck me, and I started wondering, in the scientific community that seems to be at great odds with the Christian faith, particularly in the issue of origins, right? Uh, I, I am a, a young earth creationist where I don't believe that the world is millions and billions of years old, and I'm not going to get into that debate today with you because I have smarter people to do that for me. Um, but uh, um, I, I wonder, though, for somebody who believes in like macroevolution, change from one kind to the other, does starting from the wrong starting point, how does that affect conclusions that could perhaps change the course of humanity when it comes to treating things like disease? Does, does starting from that wrong point, that presupposition, affect the conclusions and outcomes of their studies? We're going to come back to that. Uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 26 through 31. What does the Bible say about, at least about the creation of man? I want to look at that really quickly. And, uh, and then I'm going to introduce a couple of people to you. But would you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for this day. God, I thank you that we get to come together and worship you. Uh, God, I pray for this service, that it would be one of those services that really moves the line of faith. That everybody in this room, that everybody's watching online, God, that, that, you, would, that you would give them a renewed passion, that you would give a, a renewed sense of faith that really what you have told us is true and we can believe every word of it. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now we live in a, in a period of time, and, and we have for at least a couple of generations now, uh, where, where some would laugh at the idea that God created everything, that, that there is an intelligent design you know, many, many of our children, all of our children that are in public schools are being taught that they are a product of chance. That just because the certain things have happened over a course of millions and billions of years, somehow, by chance, that they are here. This is important for us to, to wrestle with because what does that say about our value, number one? What does that say about our value if it's just 
you know, over the course of millions and billions of years, we're just here by chance. It, it, we really have no intrinsic value then. We're just kind of a blip on the screen. I think that there is great evidences, great evidences for intelligent creation and intelligent design. And while I can talk a little about those things, there are people in our congregation that know a whole lot more about them than I do. Um, and so I'm gonna, we're going to be looking at, the main idea today, by the way, is that Christian faith and science are indeed compatible. In fact, science actually points to a creator. Um, um, and our first point this morning, our lie that we're going to, uh, to, to try to um, expose as a lie is that Christianity and science are incompatible. Christianity and science are incompatible. Romans 1, 19 and 20 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says very clearly here, by just look to creation, it demands a creator. Again, we've got a couple people here I want to introduce. I'm going to invite to the stage, uh, first of all, is, is um, Dr. Carrie Beal, Ph.D., Immunology and Molecular Pathogenesis. Something I didn't know existed. Let me grab your microphones. So go ahead and welcome Dr. Beal. Thank you. Joining Dr. Beal is Dr. John Bosley, Ph.D. of Environmental Science, both professors at uh, Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Both Bereaners. Uh, how cool is that, that we have uh, both these folks in their midst? Yeah. So I'm going to ask you guys a series of questions, um, mainly because when I went through college, I was always the one having to answer the questions. Now I feel like tables are turned. Now I get to put you guys in the spot. No, just kidding. That didn't get the laugh I was hoping for, so I'm going to move on quickly. First question is this. You know, we're taught in school about Dar Darwinism. Darwinian, you'll say it better than I will. I'll move on. Didn't Darwin in his theory of evolution already prove that science and Christian faith are incompatible? Isn't that already a foregone conclusion? Well, first I just want to say thank you to Pastor Dan for the invitation, and thank you to Berean. Um, I've actually been coming here just for a little under a year, and you guys are a very friendly church, very welcoming church, so I really appreciate this opportunity, and I appreciate the question, too. Um, I would say, you know, Darwin's theory, when he first proposed it, some of it was built on observation, but a lot of it was actually built on conjecture. He was anticipating that scientific discovery in subsequent years would actually bear out his theory. So I don't think we can really say that you know, his theory has disproven um, that connection. In fact, I would argue uh, quite the opposite because scientific discovery in the subsequent years after Darwin has actually shown a lack of the evidence that Darwin was looking for. Um, so yeah, I'll let Dr. Beal Real quick, can I ask a follow-up question? You said sure. scientific discoveries have shown a lack. Can you give me an example? Sure. So one of the things that Darwin was looking for was what we call transitional forms, transitional fossils. So for instance, his idea was that lower life forms evolved upward into more complex life forms. And so we would anticipate then in the fossil record that we would find lots and lots of these transitional forms. 
So for an example, uh, fish uh, evolving into an amphibian type creature and then into a reptile type creature, we would anticipate finding lots of sort of in-between types of organisms in the fossil record, and the fossil record is actually barren of those transitional forms. And that was a major piece of what he was anticipating that uh, you know, scientific discovery would show. That's great. Dr. Bill, real quickly, um, I have to read this again, but maybe you can give us a little bit of an explanation of what it is that you study since this is, uh, I, I think I can figure it out, but just, just make immunology and molecular pathogenesis. So Translates what is that? to the onset of disease and how your immune system fights that disease. Okay. That's so easy. how do we maintain health in the face of disease? Okay. Yeah. Anything you want to add to what John was saying? Um, yeah, I think even just stepping back a little bit, like if we think about when um, Charles Darwin proposed this theory of evolution, right? It was in the 1850s, so we have to go back you know, 170 years, um, and a lot of it started with observation. So we'll talk about something called the scientific method today, but it all starts with making observations in your natural world. So, right, it's one thing to look around in the environment and say, well, I see these similar structures amongst different species, and therefore, there must be a common ancestor. So even if we think about today, take the company Apple, right? We, most of us have probably heard of Apple, and we have the iPhone and the iPod and the iPad. Well, in no way would we say that the iPod, you know, evolved into the iPad, which evolved into the iPhone through, like, these software glitches or something of that nature. We would never entertain that thought, right? We would say, no, there are really intelligent people at Apple, and they have created these devices, and they share similarities because they have this common inventor. Right, so same thing when we look at creation, we would say, well, we have this intelligent creator, God, and that is why we see these, these similarities um, amongst God's creation. Yeah, very good. Thank you. John, I think you've got a couple of slides, dealing, or is it dealing with this question or the next one? I, I can actually share uh, maybe just a couple of other thoughts, too, and then, yeah, we do have some slides, but something else that comes to mind, too, is that Darwin's theory actually starts with the, the middle of the story. He doesn't start with the beginning of the story. If you think about the title of his, of his book that he published in 1859, it's called On the Origin of Species. So he was purporting to explain how we got all the species we have on the planet just through this sort of upward evolution. He doesn't actually deal with the existence of matter, though. Where did matter come from? And by matter, I'm referring to all of the elements that, that comprise planet Earth and that comprise living things. So carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, iron, magnesium. Where did these things come from? He doesn't address that in his book. And in fact, nobody you know, really pro uh, promoting the evolutionary theory has a good explanation for that. So I think it's important to keep in mind that Darwin doesn't actually start with the beginning. He starts um, in the middle um, of the story. But also something else I think that's, that's really valuable um, to know, because you don't really hear this in the mainstream media, you don't get this in textbooks, but in the scientific community today, uh, the merits of the Darwinian theory are actually being debated. And what I mean by that is there is a serious question about whether uh, Darwinian theory needs to be seriously revamped or maybe even replaced entirely. And this is where uh, I do have some slides. If we have time, yeah. we can put those up. Yeah, please do. So if, maybe go ahead and put the, the first slide up. So this is an excerpt from a scientific journal called Nature. Nature is considered the premier journal in scientific publishing. So if you publish in Nature, you have arrived. Look at the title of this. This is from a 2014 article, Does Evolutionary Theory Need a Rethink? Uh, again, this is a, 
this is a primary um, scientific um, secular journal. On one side, you have people arguing, yes, in fact, we do need to seriously revamp or even replace the evolutionary theory. On the other side, you have people saying, no, everything's fine, um, just keep it as it is. And then uh, the next slide here is an excerpt from another article. Um, this is 2017. I want to read this to you because I think this is a very poignant um, point. Uh, the author says, a rising number of publications argue for a major revision or even a replacement of the standard theory of evolution, indicating that this cannot be dismissed as a minority view, but rather is a widespread feeling among scientists and philosophers alike. You might not get that impression from scientific classes, from textbooks, from news media, but this is the reality in scientific circles. This is actually um, being debated. And a lot of the reason for that is, again, going back to the time frame of all of this, in the 1850s, you know, to your point, not even starting with matter, but like we didn't even know that DNA existed. You know, so you probably have heard of DNA. It's, it's literally the blueprint of who you are. Like it contains all of the information that makes you, you. Um, so DNA hadn't been discovered. So that's a problem with the evolutionary model. Um, the cell, they thought it was literally like this blob. Um, we didn't know of all the complex intricacies that exist inside of the cell. So this, this proposal, this theory was made really off of um, just a lot of observations. And now that we have continued to learn more and more with advanced technology, it doesn't fit into the model of evolution. And so that's where this comes from is that, okay, there, there's a lot of problems with this and even the brightest scientists don't have answers of how to rectify this information. Okay, my next question is this, and, th and then I'm going to come off script a little bit just to mess with you guys. I apologize. <laughs> you probably knew it was coming at some point, just not so quickly. So um, many would propose that science and faith are not compatible. Here's my question that wasn't on our list of questions. Would it, do you believe that it would take faith to believe in what we're talking, Darwinianism? I think it takes faith to believe in any of these models of origins, right? Because we don't, we don't have all of the answers. Whether you believe in Darwinian evolution, whether you believe in creation, I think they are all, um, they do all require a faith. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would actually argue that it would take more faith to believe in the evolutionary theory because they don't have explanations for some of these things, like matter, um, for instance, that I just mentioned. Whereas in the Bible, um, it has an explanation for everything. Think about what Genesis 1-1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I actually think that is still the most up-to-date scientific commentary we have available. God created the heavens and the earth, and that includes matter and includes all living things. Do you get amens and claps in class? I, I, don't, I don't get those in class, yeah. no. I'm going I'm to move on um, to this next point here. So this is... That was our lie, that Christianity and science are incompatible. Here's our first truth, that complexity of creation points to a creator. Uh, in Hebrews 3, 11, 1 through 3, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the that was. I'm sorry, what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, again, clearly it takes faith to believe that God created the universe. However, we do have good reasons for that faith, uh, including the complexity of creation. Do you want to speak into that? Sure, and, and I think you actually bring up a point in the question itself, the word complexity. 
there is so much complexity in nature, and as Dr. Beal mentioned, the more that we have discovered things, the more that technology has allowed us to analyze things at smaller and smaller levels, the more we realize how much complexity is there. So for, for me, my own background is uh, ecology and entomology, which is study of insects. You might think an insect, it's just a simple little bug, right? How complex could it be? But as we have been able to study them at the cellular and molecular level, we've actually found that the internal workings of, of an insect is actually just as complex as the human body. And there's a term that we use in the sciences called irreducible complexity. This is the idea that if you have a functioning system, you have to have all component parts present from the beginning for it to actually function, and all of those component parts have to be individually functionable too. If one of them is not working or it's incomplete, it compromises that, that whole system and maybe will actually bring that whole system you know, to a halt. How could you have that from an evolutionary perspective? How could you get a full functioning system if all of these component parts have to be there from the beginning? That's not what evolutionary gradualism suggests. It says, you know, over gradual long periods of time, you get one component part and then maybe another component part, but it doesn't actually function if you don't have all those parts together. So it's called irre irreducible complexity. Yeah. Um, irreducible complexity. Um, did you, you had a couple other things you wanted to say about this? The well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you could look at, uh, for instance, something else that I study are plants. If you even just look at a plant cell, um, plants have, you know, all these individual components, again, helping them from the cellular, um, you know, at the cellular level. But something that plants have that we don't have is something called a chloroplast. That's what allows them to do photosynthesis. If plants didn't have a chloroplast, they wouldn't be able to produce their own food. They wouldn't be able to survive. So again, even at the cellular level, um, you would be talking about a breakdown of this system before it actually could function and, and then have plants be able to reproduce. Yeah, so the complexity of creation points to creator. You spend a lot of time dealing with, obviously, environmental sciences. That's what your PhD is in. Um, is there any, anything that you have observed that you just say that specifically to you, you say this, this, there's only, the only solution here is the creation or creator? Yeah, well, I think uh, maybe something that comes to mind is, you know, keep in mind, God, God is our creator, but as you read through Genesis, it also talks about God destroying the world by a worldwide flood. He is an omnipotent God, and as creator, he also has the right then to intervene in his creation, and in this case, to destroy because of the rampant sin. So when I look at the world and I see that 70% of our planet is covered by ocean water, the Bible has an explanation for where all that ocean water came from. Um, if you read through the Genesis account on the worldwide flood, obviously we know about the 40 days and nights of rain, but it also said God broke open the fountains of the deep. And what creation scientists believe is that there were subterranean chambers of water, vast chambers of water, and God through tectonic activity, through earthquakes, actually caused disruptions in that. That water was forcefully shot up and then spread across the earth, and you know, now it collected into our ocean uh, chambers today, which we know of as our current oceans. From an evolutionary perspective, though, there's no good explanation on where all that water came from, and this is something, I actually teach a course called Aquatic Environments, and we look at that. Um, you know, we start with uh, ocean um, geology, and so I really delved into this topic to try to find, I'm trying to give you know, fair platform to the evolutionary model as well as then we contrast it with our creation model. 
And do you know what I was finding for the explanation of for where all the ocean water came from? From an evolutionary perspective, uh, the argument is that it was asteroids or comets. You know, that's a lot of asteroids or a lot of comets bombarding Earth to bring enough water to fill the ocean basins. The reality is there's no good explanation from an evolutionary perspective on where the water came from. But again, the Bible provides a very rational explanation for it. And so I just continue to see whether I'm looking at the complexity of life or looking at the complexity of the Earth itself, it points to not only a creator, but specifically it points to the creator of the Bible. I got to ask you, so before I move on to the next question, um, these explanations aren't something that is taught in public school. Um, it, it would appear as though you guys are kind of on an island in some ways as, as to your beliefs. Is that true, or are there a lot of scientists who are well-trained who would come to the same conclusions that you two have? Yeah, there are actually a lot of prominent Christian scientists, and even before Darwin, um, most of the well-renowned um, scientists were Christians. Like, when they um, did their scientific discoveries and research, like, they always pointed their findings back to a creator. So Charles Darwin was really the one who disrupted that, that model moving forward, um, and now, I mean, even still, I think, I know Dr. Bosley has some examples on his paper, but there are a lot of um, very well-respected Christian scientists out there um, that would definitely argue against this, this theory of evolution. Yeah, and that would include both historically as well as present. So if you think about, you know, just historically, um, a lot of our current disciplines in the sciences were established by God-fearing Christians. Um, for instance, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, you might know him as an artist, but you know he was also a tremendous um, engineer and architect. He's actually regarded by many as the father of modern science. Um, Francis Bacon founded what we call the scientific method. Uh, Matthew Mari, he founded what we now know of as oceanography. He actually got his ideas from the Bible. Um, there's a psalm that talks about uh, God making paths in the ocean, and Matthew Mari was inspired by that as an oceanographer, and he wondered are there actually paths in the ocean? So he started studying it and found, sure enough, there are currents in the ocean, like the Gulf Stream, for instance. His idea came from the Bible. Um, so that's historically, but then also in the current world, there are a lot of um, Bible-believing Christians. Now, some people are in such a situation where they can't necessarily be publicly um, you know, prominent about that position. They have to be a little bit careful because there are some hostilities in academia you know, against Bible-believing Christians, but they are out there. I'll give you an example. Um, Raymond Damadian, Dr. Raymond Damadian, um, if you have ever had an MRI, he's the guy who invented the MRI. He is a biblical creationist, a young earth creationist. Um, and then also, something else you might, might not be aware of, but um, when you get home later today, maybe uh, just uh, log onto your computer and Google this, um, but there is something called the Darwin Descent List, and this is a, a list of literally probably at this point now hundreds and hundreds of scientists who have a biblical worldview who have been willing to sign their name to this list, and you can actually scroll through the list and see all the different fields they're in. It's called the Darwin Descent List, uh, but there are many, many current scientists who do see the failings of evolution and who see the reality of, of you know, what, what Scripture actually teaches. Thank you. You know, Psalm 139, 13 through 15 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. Then uh, when I was when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. 
Uh, Dr. Bill, our next point is the, the human body reveals planning and design. Could you give us a couple of points uh, that kind of speaks to that? Yeah, absolutely. And also just to start with scripture, um, in 1 Corinthians, I mean, Paul is really using the human body um, as a metaphor to talk about the body of Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it even starts with the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. Um, and then verse 18 says, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And so this is really when I see this concept of irreducible complexity. Again, this idea that all of the parts of the body are necessary, well, the majority are necessary to function um, uh, collectively together, um, or that's when we do see disease or we do see death result. And so this idea that you can't just pull out the lungs and say we still have a functioning human body, or you pull out the heart, right, that's not possible. And so if we look at this from an evolutionary perspective, well, in theory, over you know, millions and millions and millions of years, these different components would have slowly evolved, and we know, again, that that can't happen. Um, because just to breathe, um, just to have our heart functioning, right, we need our blood vessels, we need blood, we need the cells in the blood, we need the heart, we need the lungs, we need to be able to take in oxygen and get rid of carbon dioxide. And so again, like, which, which part isn't necessary? Which part can we take out of there and still have functioning life? And the answer is none. We, we can't remove any of those components. So that's just kind of at a, at a large level when we think about how wonderfully made we are. And then if we even want to draw back and, and talk about the cell a little bit more, right? I mean, our bodies are made of trillions and trillions of cells. It's like the basic unit of life. So seemingly simple. Again, Darwin literally thought it was, um, think of like taking a Ziploc bag and putting water in it. That's what he thought a cell was. It's got this outer casing. It's filled with some liquid. Really, how complex can it be? Well now, right, 170 years later, we know it's extremely complex. So just within one single cell, we have millions of different proteins, and we need those for the cell to live. If the cell doesn't live, it dies, and if the cell dies, we die at a, at a large scale. So again, like, where did that come from? How did that evolve over millions of years, where if we take one piece out of that, it's going to result in cell death or like an improper pathway where we, we end up with cancer formation. So even just looking at the cell, like my, my son is in sixth grade at Mansfield Christian, and he just did this great project called Cell City. And the idea is, right, the cell is really complex. It's like a city, right? So imagine Mansfield. How would Mansfield just, you know, form like that, right? The answer is it doesn't. You need planners. You need a, you need a power plant. You need the, the garbage company to come. Like you have... You have similarities to this in the cell that makes energy, that allows for waste products to be gotten rid of, um, that allows for like highways, that allows for materials to be moved within the cell. And that all requires a creator. It all requires an intelligent creator where all of these parts have to come together to function as one. So that would be a few examples. Um, one more, I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but even just if you cut your skin, Right, if you get a cut, and we take for granted that that cut just stops bleeding, right? But we know that there are conditions where a blood clot does not form, and you can literally bleed out and you can die. We also know, right, that if blood clots form too frequently, that that can lead to a clot formation that can stop blood flow, um, and that can also be lethal as well. So just this simple process of forming a blood clot involves 12 different 
factors, clotting factors, they're called. Like, we don't think of that, and we, we don't appreciate that process, right? We get a little nick on our skin, and it stops bleeding, or we put a Band-Aid on, we go about our day. But again, each of those factors happens in a sequential order. It's like starting with one domino, you tip it over, and we have to have 12 dominoes fall over in a row to get to that end product. And if we take one of them out, the chain stops, and we don't get to the end. Okay, so again, if we are missing just one of those proteins in that process, we bleed out. Well, again, how did, how did those evolve? How did those happen over time? So this, this concept of irreducible complexity um, is really vital, and it really strikes down this argument of Darwinian evolution. Well, thank you very much. Um, we're, we're, I'm looking at the time, and I'm, I'm shocked at what time it is, so we're going to have to start uh, wrapping up. But we, we started kind of, I posed the question about, um, could starting at a wrong beginning point influence a conclusion? and thus hinder the development of life-saving scientific brief breakthroughs. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly can. And one thing that comes to mind, this is something uh, we talked about in our apologetics class a couple weeks ago, the question about oil um, came up. So oil and coal, these are fossil fuels. Um, and generally, from an evolutionary perspective, it's thought it takes millions of years for things, these things to form. But as you know, in the 1980s, there was a series of small studies that were done to see if we could reproduce the you know, actual creation of oil and coal in laboratory conditions, and they found that, in fact, you could. It doesn't take long amounts of time. It takes the right conditions. Now, it wasn't, we weren't able to do it efficiently to actually you know, change you know, the global economy with energy production, but the research was abandoned. It wasn't continued, and I asked a geologist friend of mine, said, why do you think this research wasn't continued? Even though it's not efficient right now, if we continued researching it, couldn't we maybe have the hope of eventually making it efficient? And he said he thought it was shut down because it didn't fit with the paradigm. The existing paradigm is that it takes millions of years for this to form. We can't allow this to be done in the laboratory conditions because then it's going to give credence to this whole idea of the biblical creation story, and we don't want that to happen. So in this case, if that's actually true, then that means an entire area of research was shut down simply because it contradicts the evolutionary paradigm. So yes, I think starting from the wrong point can seriously lead you down the wrong path. Thank you. If you're like me, this is, this is completely fascinating to me, and I very much appreciate both of you and your answers today. Um, we were only barely, barely scratching the surface on this conversation. Uh, real quick, is there, is there any place else we can turn after we conclude today to, to get more information? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, John and I are happy to stay after. If you want to talk with either of us anymore, we're well, um, more than willing to do that. Somehow, I think I also got roped into making videos yesterday, so um, Pastor Dan was like, hey, we should do a video series. Uh, so I think John and I are going to be um, creating some videos over the summer. That sounds like a commitment to me. <laughs> So um, anyway, uh, look for those. That we can go into a little bit more detail in that way, but I think that's something we're going to be working on this summer. Yeah, and I'm happy to stick around, too, if you have questions, so feel free to come on up. Also, this summer, if you have uh, high school students in your household or you are a high school student, um, I'm going to be hosting an environmental science camp at our university at MVNU. Um, it's going to be from July 10th through the 14th. We're going to be out in God's creation, learning about something called biomonitoring. So we're going to be in the streams, in the forests, um, catching salamanders, crayfish, fish, and actually learning how they can tell us something about environmental health. Um, so check that out. We have That's on our uh, university's website, MVNU Summer Camps. Okay, so real quickly, what are the ages for that again? That's high school, um, so ninth through 12th grade. Going into ninth through 12th? Uh, yeah, also going into ninth, yep. Technically not. It's if you are 
This is going to be awkward, so we're going to move on. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. Would you guys give a big uh, uh, applause to thank them? <laughs> yeah, thank you guys very much. The band's going to come up on stage, and we're going to conclude. Uh, I, I hope this kind of just piques your interest, and I, I hope that it, it can reaffirm uh, that you have your faith where it belongs. And there is good evidence even within the scientific community for that faith that we have. In fact, Christian faith and science are indeed compatible. Uh, and I, I would believe and that science actually points to a creator. So again, I hope that this service would help you to leave here uh, with good reasons for a strong faith in a creator. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for brilliant minds like Dr. Bosley and Dr. Beals um, who have seen the evidences and who, and like in Romans, where it says, if we look into creation, it demands a creator, and they have looked into it and have found just that. God, help us to leave, help us to leave here today knowing that we know that we know that your word is true, every bit of it, and that we can trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.